What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100, or around, somewhere around 100-something of the podcast. I never remember what uh, our the, the, the number of the podcast is. but uh, So basically, uh, we're not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you just tuning in for the first time, what we do here on the podcast is uh, I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something we think you guys out there would like to hear a conversation about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go uh, uh, go out and purchase the book yourself and uh, give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor Michael Brewers, and Professor Brewers is a professor of Western European history at the University of Oxford. Uh, he is a major historian of the Napoleonic period, and his books on the era include Europe Under Napoleon, 1799-1815, Europe After Napoleon, Revolution, Reaction, and Romanticism, 1814-1848, Napoleon's Other War, Bandits, Rebels, and Their Pursuers in the Age of Revolutions, and the Napoleonic Mediterranean Enlightenment Revolution and Empire. He is also the co-editor of the first volume of the Cambridge History of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Politics and Diplomacy. And lastly, he is the author of the book we are discussing today, Napoleon, the Decline and Fall of an Empire, 1811 to 1821, which was published back in August by Pegasus Books, and is the third and concluding volume of his biography of Napoleon, the first two books of which uh, were great. Uh, the first of the two books, which were Napoleon, Soldier of Destiny, and Napoleon, The Spirit of the Age, 1805 to 1810. So, uh, Professor Brewers, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tim. My pleasure entirely. So, um, I guess the first question, how, um, how did the Napoleon bug bite you? When did, uh, when did this fascination with, with, Napoleon the man, and then this time period in history, uh, was it something you had from a, uh, you know, from childhood, or was it something that, uh, um, uh, you know, came about when you were at university, or anything like that? How did you um, decide that you wanted to, you know, essentially spend your, uh, your working life uh, writing about this man in this period? Yeah, it's kind of gone in a circle. Um I've been fascinated by Napoleon since I was a little boy, I think, as a lot of little boys are. Um, you know, the, the, the military side of it, um, the, the great soldier, the battles. And um, when I was a young teenager, I read the uh, Brigadier Gerard stories by Arthur Cannon Doyle and the Hornblower stories mm-hmm. you know, by, by Foster. Yeah, Foster. And, and they really gripped me, you know, as a, you know, as, as a kid. Uh, I couldn't get enough of that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it sort of led to that, that was one side of it. And that kind of got pushed to one side. I think when I went to, when I went to university, when I became a student, that's when I became very interested in the French revolution. And then when I went on to do my thesis, 
my supervisor said to me, well, you know, not a lot of serious work has been done on the Napoleonic period unless it's military or diplomatic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the archives are, are great. So go and do your doctoral thesis in there because it's a big black hole. And I did. And uh, I spent most of my early career and middle career um, working on the non-military stuff, you know, working on what the empire was like, mm. its administration. I got particularly interested in um, things like banditry and brigadage, conscription, and the legal system was one of my latest interests. I'm coming back to it now. Mm. And that somehow um, led me back to Napoleon himself. You know, it kind of went in a circle. I'm back to where I started. <laughs> That's but I've good. always been I've always been in the circle of Napoleon somehow. Yeah. So uh, Napoleon, um, he's probably the most written about person in the history of the world, or I think he's up there with you know he's up there Jesus yeah. Christ and Lincoln and maybe like Hitler or something like Hitler, that. Hitler, yeah. yeah. Um, so obviously, it's a crowded field uh, when you're writing about Napoleon. I mean, I probably have. You know, I probably or I probably purchase it seems like a book or two every year on <laughs> Napoleon, you know. Um so it's a crowded field and it's a difficult one to stand out in. So what made you want to take on this project? What was the genesis of it and how did you or what made you think you could offer uh a fresh perspective on a man who's been written about so much? Yeah, I hadn't been thinking about it for a while, uh, really. I hadn't really thought about it much. I was busy doing other aspects of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying, there were two things that really spurred me on. One was actually the the emergence of the new version of Napoleon's correspondence, mm. which has been edited and put together by the Fondation Napoleon Paris, Thierry Lance and his team, which really has... Um, changed the whole field of Napoleonic studies. You know, without going too far into it, the official correspondence we had published in the 19th century was taken charge of by his his nephew, the Emperor Napoleon III. So it was pretty selective. You know, you couldn't trust it. Mm -hmm. But this thing is three and a half to four times bigger. Uh, It embraces stuff that the old correspondence simply didn't. It's a fantastic piece of work, a new resource. And I thought if I got my skates on, I could be one of the first in the field, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a big spur. And when, when Pegasus and Faber in the UK showed interest in it, um, that was part of it. The other thing, actually, is, it, is just a funny thing. I'm quite a competitive person. <laughs> you know, I, I played a lot of sport when I was younger, you mm-hmm. know, when, when I was at school, when I was at university and stuff like that. And, uh, I'm just a competitive sort of person. And I thought to myself, I want to try and make my mark in a, in the most crowded field I could think of <laughs> that I'm competitive in. And that's a pretty crowded field. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That's... Well, that's great. Uh, I imagine, uh, was it always planned as a three volume? Uh, did you go into it uh, thinking like, all right, it's going to be, I'm going to do uh, this, this, project I'm going to work on is going to be a three volume project. Did it start out that way or did it start out as a single volume or how did it it... started? It started out as a two volume project, but pretty soon into it, um, we were all convinced that it would take at least three volumes. Mm -hmm. 
uh, it, it became pretty clear from the wealth of the correspondence uh, and from so many aspects of the Napoleonic story that really haven't been studied in any kind of biography or general book properly, but I think were quite important. And thank goodness my editors at Pegasus gave me, they gave me my head and said, yeah, do the three volumes. This looks good. Yeah, that's great. I imagine when you're undertaking <laughs> a project like that, you kind of have to uh, psych yourself up for it in a way, um, you know, because it's <laughs> you basically <laughs> sit there and think like, well, this is probably going to take up the next decade of my working life or pretty close to it, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, so, <clears throat> so when you first get started, <clears throat> I assume it's like, well, got to, you know, hitch up the pants and, uh, you know, get cracking <laughs> sort of thing, you know? Yeah. It's pretty daunting. Um, you know, it, it, it really is. Uh, you, you, well, you look at the correspondence itself sitting there on the shelf uh, and you think, there's an awful lot to plow through here, plus everything you also know. Mm. One of the things that sort of helped me into it, though, was, of course, I have been working on this, as you sure. said, all my adult life. And there are questions that I wanted to answer, gaps I wanted to fill and things I wanted to say. And and when you get to that, you know, when you have that going on inside your mind, you don't really need a lot of motivation. What hmm. you actually need to do is to stop and think, how am I going to organize myself? Yeah. How am I going to tackle this from a day-to-day point of view of, of marshalling everything that's there, you hmm. know, into some kind of comprehensible form? That was the hard bit. But there, there were so many things I felt in the course of the three volumes I wanted to, to discuss and to find out more about. Sure. But that was pretty self-starting. Yeah. Yeah, that's how. So, how many volumes are in this new uh, this new edition of his correspondence from the Fondation Napoleon? Um, fifteen altogether. Uh-huh. They're all well over a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. Some of them closer to two thousand. Uh, very tightly packed print, very thin pages. It's incredibly <laughs> daunting. It's incredibly daunting. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were talking about length one time, I um, I got out, got one of the volumes down off the shelf and threatened to drop it on one of my editors. <laughs> I said, "Here, you want to find out what I'm up against? Feel it. Never right, mind, right. Read it. feel it." <laughs> so, did you read through the whole thing before you started, or did you go to it? Did you work, uh, or did you go I to worked, it sort of piecemeal? I worked it. Uh, well, I had a system. I wouldn't say it was piecemeal. But uh, I mean, I'd read. I, I was I was a bit like. I felt a bit like the the, the, the scriptwriters on Game of Thrones waiting for J.R. Martin to produce. <laughs> at one point, I started off when we had about, I think, four or five volumes out, mm. and volume one and the beginning of volume two, I felt very secure with because I had everything. Mm. You know, I could look at it, I could go through it, whatever. I mean, I haven't read every single letter in there. You, you couldn't. Right. Um, I mean, they have a different editorial team for every volume because everybody gets burnt out. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, they do. Um, but when, as I got closer to the edge, uh, as I got into volume three of my own work, um, you know, they were sort of coming to me hot off the press. You know, I would get mm-hmm. a phone call from, from friends at the Fondation saying the next volume's on its way. 
Um, you know, they would get it to me as soon as they could uh, because I was coming up to that point. But I, I, you have to when you face with something like that, they, you, you really have to develop a system of working at it. And fortunately, we're so lucky that they've spared no trouble or expense. Their scholarly apparatus is brilliant. And I basically approached it in two ways. I did two things parallel to something. I would find the crucial period, say a crucial, you know, a mm-hmm. crucial crisis point, what I or what I thought was a crisis point, even if the general literature didn't. And I would simply sit down and read between those dates. I would read every letter in there and, and pick out what I needed. Gotcha. The other thing is you kind of follow this correspondence with a person. Mm. You find out the people. Um, you know, who he says certain things to, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you, sorry, I've got a little cat with me. He's determined <laughs> no to walk over the keyboard. He's a wonderful <laughs> lad, but he loves to be involved in these things. And um, well, The more the merrier, so. Uh, well, yeah, he sent my wife's um, the Zoom beating into chaos yesterday. So, <laughs> but, he, uh, but what you do is you, you find... You know, particular people he's close to. He writes to a lot about what's important. Talleyrand, Conversaires, mm-hmm. later on, Marie-Louise, uh, people like the Hortense. And you you latch onto them, you know, mm-hmm. and you follow the thread of his relationship with them through the correspondence. Right. right. Those yeah. are the two ways you have to tackle it. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, all right. Well, now that we got all this stuff, <clears throat> let's get to the book itself. So you start... This volume, the the prelude to this volume, starts on July first, eighteen ten, with the fire at the at the Hotel de Montesson in Paris. Uh, why did you choose to begin uh, this volume there? I felt it was emblematic of everything. But first of all, I thought this will grab a reader's attention mm. and draw them in. Um, I've tried to do that with volume yeah. two as well. Uh, but it's something that would really ar- an arresting moment. And when I put the events of the fire together with the correspondence and everything else that was going on that day, it was, as, as I say at the beginning, it was a big day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was one of those days in a life when a lot of things happen. Um, he finally fires Fouché, his director of police, who he's been wanting to get rid of for years. You know, and you kind of have to think, okay, like I've got my new wife. uh, Finally, I've got a much, much wanted baby on the way. Uh, I finally got rid of that SOB. You know, um, I'm I'm, I'm okay. You know, it's going to be okay now. And then uh, and they go to the event. I can see it in my mind. I don't know if I'm a good enough writer to convey it to the reader. But I mean, I can see all that evening on my mind, in my mind so clearly, you know, they go along to this big party being thrown for them by the people who were his arch enemies a year ago. Mm-hmm. And now they're throwing a party for him. You know, this is looking good. It's a nice evening. Everybody's there. All my friends are there. All my family there. It's terrific. And then there's this terrible catastrophe, this dreadful fire. And it's somehow to be emblematic of the whole course of the book, of the whole mm-hmm. course of the life. Everything's going well. And then this dreadful thing happens. You know, now on this occasion, it's it's managed, uh, but but it shows you what can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, out of the blue, something can hit you. And of course, the, 
at the end, it's so typical. He takes it in hand. He reorganizes the fire service, you know, makes it more efficient because he sees we've, you know, we've done something wrong here. Mm. We'll put it right. That's the good side of Napoleon for me. You see a problem, you solve it. But at the same time, when it comes to casualties, when it comes to deaths, everything like that, he lies. He, he just lies. Mm. And this is, again, going to be a recurring theme. As things get worse, you just lie. Yeah. It seemed to encapsulate the whole thing. Gotcha. So, all right. So the book really starts with Napoleon. So basically, New Year's Day in 1811. Uh, this is Napoleon. This is Bonaparte at his zenith. Um, but maybe give us a little overview. I mean, uh, you don't have to go too far back, but give us a little overview of how Napoleon has gotten to this point. I mean, I don't think you have to start at like 18 Brumaire or anything like that, but, but, uh, uh, but how did Napoleon arrive at this moment where, uh, you know, he's this, uh, basically continent, uh, bestriding Colossus and, uh, sort of the, uh, uh, generally the uh, uh, the un um, what's the word I'm looking for here the uh, the undisputed champion <laughs> yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know what you yeah. mean, I mean, yeah. the boss um, the capo di capi he um, well he's he's pretty much there he thinks in, in 1807 because between 1805 and 1807, just before 1805, when he thinks he's going to go to war with England, he creates the Grande Armée, the Great Army, mm. trains it. These guys are conscripts. We're all conscripts. He trains them from up from nothing, arms and equips them, turns them into one of the greatest armies the world has ever seen. He unleashes it in 1805, first against the Austrians and the Russians, and 1806 against the Prussians, and 1807 against the Russians. And he, he licks everybody. He, fight, he, he fights the Russians to a draw, but he licks the Austrians and the Prussians. So he's already got a lot of Europe at his feet. But in eight, by 1809, he's embroiled in a war in Spain. You know, but it's all much known, much mm-hmm. written about. He's got a war against the, the guerrillas, the Spanish guerrillas. He's at war with the English and the Portuguese, Wellington and all that along the border. And at that time, at that moment in time, the British convinced the Austrians to attack him while his back is turned. In 1809, I think this is one of the most amazing things in the whole story that's, I think, sometimes undervalued. Turns his army in Spain around, hustles it back to Central Europe, takes on the Austrians in a three-day battle at Wagram. I mean, that's a Gettysburg-style battle. Mm-hmm. You know, that's three days defeats them but he says himself you know it was a near run thing like wellington at water it was a near run thing but he defeats them that knocks austria out of the game he there's a kind of a shotgun wedding between him and the emperor of austria's daughter his mary louise his second wife um and that is basically how he gets there he's the king of the castle yeah and by 1811 he's even winning in spain he's at he, he is winning mm-hmm. he's got the upper hand and, and that's how he gets there, mm-hmm. in a nutshell. Yeah, and you mentioned your um, your interest in the administration uh, of the empire and that sort of thing. How 
how was his uh, again because this is sort of the French Empire at its at its peak, uh, the Napoleonic Empire at its peak. How was his how was his empire administered? Very professionally. Uh, in the Napoleon's uh, own empire, and in the satellite kingdoms that were under his siblings, and indeed in a lot of the states like his German allies who chose to copy how he did did things pretty much won the way most continental countries, and particularly France, are run today. Um, it all hinges on a very centralized state, council of state ministers at the top, um, each one running his own show, but ultimately responsible to Napoleon and, and the, the, the council. Uh, the local administration is headed up in every department, which is about the size of a county. Uh, run by a prefect. It's very hard to explain what the prefect is to, you know, a, a, a British or American person because we don't have anybody like that. He's a civil servant, a professional civil servant by the end of the empire, very highly trained, uh, you know, at university and at, at, the, at the special academy. They, they still have for them uh, very experienced people uh, who, who run every aspect of local administration except justice and finance. Um, and they basically run it through their their local appointees. Everybody's appointed through the center. Everything comes up to the top to being appointed. It's that centralized. And it's to keep it professional. And as far as possible, it's all under one law code, the Napoleonic law code, which is still used in over 40 countries in the world mm. in this basis. You know, courts are organized in a professional hierarchy. Um, you know, as I say, there's one code of civil law and one code of criminal law for the whole of the empire. Most of the other states copy it. It's run in a very uniform and increasingly professional way. Right. And uh, his relationship with the Catholic Church at this point, what, what is his uh, <laughs> what's going <laughs> what's going on with his relationship with, with the pope and uh, with the church? <laughs> Basically, by 1811, he hasn't got one anymore. Uh, yeah, but right at the beginning, this is one of the things I wanted to explode in the, in the course of this book, mm -hmm. and I've done some of the other general stuff I've written. There's a big hoo-ha made that in the first years of his rule, the consulate, he and the Pope reached this agreement, the Concordat, yeah? Because mm -hmm. under the French Revolution, the Catholic Church had been persona non grata in France. Yeah, basically, it wasn't legal. It had no legal status, anything right. like that. Whole thing's done away with. And the, the Pope accepts the Concordat, even though he doesn't like it. He thinks it gives Napoleon way too much control. Doesn't give anything like the church's old influence back over things like education, censorship, that sort of stuff. Uh, but he takes it because it's better than, better than no deal. Mm. Um Napoleon is always hesitant and suspicious of the church. And there have been tensions right from the beginning of the regime. You know, he doesn't understand them and they don't trust him. Mm. Um, you know, he always looking over his shoulder at the church and thinks about, you know, that under the Ancien Regime, before the French Revolution, church was way too powerful in French society. Church has a grudge against me because I'm one of the revolutionaries. Um, you know, they're always trying to stick their nose in where it doesn't belong. Um, little things that come out in the correspondence you wouldn't normally think of. But I, I find very interesting about both how the guy's mind works and his relationship with the church. You know, he keeps writing to bishops and stuff like that. You stop people telling what to do on Sundays. <laughs> it's their business. If they want to go to church, they can go to church. 
you know, if they want to play football, let them go play football. You do not interfere with somebody's Sunday. Uh, you, and just you remember that church weddings are not legal anymore. You have to get legal married to registry office, that kind of thing. The, the tensions start to come on several fronts. The Pope doesn't like it when Napoleon annexes large parts of Italy for strategic reasons and says, I'm extending the concordat to it. Mm. And the Pope says, that's not the deal, pal. The deal was that the concordat applies to those places that are France or at, were annexed to France when the deal was signed in 1802. You can't do that. Napoleon says, watch me. Yeah. How many divisions Start. does the Pope have? You know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. exactly right. <laughs> um, that was the title of the first paper I ever published. <laughs> and, uh, actually, and, uh, the, yeah, it starts in 1805 when he starts annexing bits and bobs of, you know, of bits of Italy, bits of Germany. And, uh, you know, the, the, the Pope's sort of getting angry and angry about this because that means, you see, what people don't understand about the Concordat, too, is it abolishes. He's like Henry VIII. He abolishes the regular clergy. All the convents and monasteries close. All these people are made redundant. They're laid off. And the Pope was saying, look, it's one thing in France where they were abolished in 1789, 1790. You can't do that in Tuscany in 1808. Napoleon says, watch me, pal. Mm-hmm. You know, and eventually Napoleon occupies the papal states themselves. Really, that's for military reasons. Mm. The Pope is basically letting it become a smuggling entrepot for the English. And so Napoleon moves into the occupies the place and says, I'm going to annex this to France and the Concordat is coming here. Hmm. You, my friend, are going to come and live in Paris where I can keep an eye on you. He doesn't actually mean that threat. You know, he's not going to do that to the Pope. He's just going to arrest a lot of the Pope's ministers. Pope shuts himself up to Kiji Palace and says, you want me, you come and get me. Yeah. But he launches the Pope launches this massive campaign of civil disobedience against Napoleon that drives him nuts. And yeah. actually in eighteen oh nine, just before the Battle of Bagram, the Pope excommunicates him. Napoleon laughs it off. But it goes downhill from there. Mm. And in the end the Pope winds up at Fontainebleau Palace outside Paris, where Napoleon spends a lot of time. He winds up Napoleon's prisoner. Mm. They actually get on quite well personally. You know, they're two good old Italian boys <laughs> who yeah. like going mushrooming, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But but he's he's basically Napoleon's prisoner. Mm. And, and then Napoleon eventually has to release him. Mm. So uh, you mentioned how uh, the Pope is using the Papal States as sort of a smuggling uh, area um, uh, for Britain. So um, how is the, the continental system the blockade going at this time. You write in the book that this this period for Britain, or the first you know half of the book, this period 1810 to 1812, is really the the nadir nadir for Britain during the during the the entire Napoleonic uh, war time frame. Yeah, it's I, I find it very interesting um, that when you stand back from the continental blockade, it's obviously unworkable. Mm-hmm. You know, how is anybody going to shut down the whole of the West of the European coastline to the British? You can't do it. But you can go. You can get a very long way, as Napoleon found out. And about 1810, 11, um, everybody's hit by bad weather conditions and bad harvest. 
and Britain just as much as France. And Britain's much more dependent on on imports, much more dependent on imports than France was. And Britain's also done other things like expanded into South America and stuff and made bad, you know, bad business mm-hmm. ventures, places like that in America. And the whole economy goes on the rocks. You know, there's runs on the banks, bankruptcies, businesses collapsing. A prime minister is assassinated yeah. in the course of this. The only British prime minister ever assassinated was assassinated by a guy from Liverpool who'd lost everything in the blockade. He kills it in the foyer of the House of Commons. I mean, there was somebody jostled nearly killed there the other night, but that's a different story. No, um, but um, yeah, there's a big, you know, there's there's all this going on. Napoleon's sitting watching this and thinking the blockade is working. You know, the sound advice is telling him, look, the blockade is putting a strain on everything. You know, it's doing us more harm than it is them. And Napoleon's saying, no, look, look what's happening to them. This must be working. These these guys are in real desperate trouble. We're in trouble too, but not in that kind of trouble. And then in 1811, the Russians pull out of the blockade because it's hurting their economy too much. And they have been crucial to the success of the blockade because that's where the Royal Navy gets most of its raw material from. Mm-hmm. You know, no no Russian timber, no Russian pitch, no Russian tar, no Royal Navy. And when they pull out of the blockade, Napoleon decides, right, I've got to get you. Yeah. You know, but he, he felt that he felt it was very close to success in 1811. Yeah. Let's get to the, the Russians, actually. Uh, and Tsar Alexander specifically, who is Napoleon's I guess, main antagonist or mm-hmm. you even call him his nemesis. Uh, tell us a bit about about Alexander alexander's personality and um his relationship with napoleon and you write in the book that uh napoleon could never really get a read on alexander but he thought he could and that this was turned out to be a fatal flaw for napoleon yeah that is one of the most fascinating relationships i think i've ever had the privilege of writing about in my life and Alexander's a fascinating person. He was fascinating to, to everyone who knew him in the era, particularly because he's unknowable. That guy came out of a background, a court society in Russia, that is straight out of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. straight out of House of the Dragon. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, he, he was possibly part of the plot that murdered his own father. You know, he certainly mm. saw it happen. And he also got not one male Romanov, not one male czar between Peter the Great and Alexander died peacefully in his bed. Yeah, they all met violent ends. Um, In fact, it became kind of a euphemism throughout Europe and North America right through this this period. It used to talk about the Asiatic solution. That's when you wanted to kill somebody. Mm. And he's come through all that. And he's very well educated. Um, his first language was French. Uh, incredibly bright man. Very well read. Beautiful manners. A very handsome chap uh, in an age when, you know, your physical appearance counted for a lot. Um, could always outshine anybody, including Napoleon, you know, in company. 
but was ultimately unknowable. Um, he was unfathomable because he had this courtly manner, whatever happened to him. He was kind of a marble man, except he was seemed approachable. The other thing that happens to Alexander, and it is fascinating and eye-opening, is that somewhere along the line during the campaign of 1812, when the French have invaded his country, when they're, 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 they're pushing deeper into Russia, when they've sacked Moscow, when they've beaten his army, Alexander undergoes a genuine religious conversion. You know, he'd always paid lip service to the church because he's the head of the Russian church and he does it. But he's an 18th century man, you know, of, mm. uh, a bit like Jefferson, I think, a deist, a rationalist. Sure. He undergoes a genuine religious conversion. And, and I mean, he doesn't wear it on his sleeve. You know, he's not that sort of person. But he develops a deep religious faith that comes out in his letters to his sister more than anybody that we will win this. God will guide us through this. We just have to we have to have faith. Right. You know, God is on our side. What Napoleon's doing is wrong. And I don't think Napoleon could ever get a handle on that because he's, you know, he's a rationalist. He's a straightforward 18th century rationalist. Yeah. He's not going to understand somebody like that any more than he could understand Pius VII, the Pope. Mm -hmm. But he can't read Alexander. Even before that, he thinks he's got Alexander on side. He hasn't because Alexander's patient. And his religious faith makes him more patient. You know, we'll, we'll wait even if, it, even, if it, even if it takes 30 years. Mm -hmm. We'll wait. He, because... Alexander has faith that Napoleon will overreach himself, you know, and he can Napoleon can never quite believe that he sees Alexander as essentially a very bright, personally very brave, but ultimately very weak and vacillating young man. And he's got him completely wrong by 1812. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. The invasion of the famous uh, Napoleon's invasion of Russia. But um, what is Napoleon's, what does the Grand Army look like uh, on its outset into Russia? Only, uh, you know, it's about uh, four or five hundred thousand, mm. something, something like that. Uh, but only half of the, really about half of the troops that Napoleon's going to bring into Russia with him are French. And the rest are, uh, you know, Poles and and Germans and whatnot. Talk about about the uh, uh, the structure of the Grand Army in this. Uh... Yeah, it it looks very imposing. You know, it's meant to, but it's a complicated mess. Uh, you've got this wide range of, of nationalities brought into the army. Um, as, as, as you said, I mean, barely half of them are French. Uh, they're concentrated in in the big strike force, the big units. Like the Imperial Guard, um, some of the Army Corps, some of them led particularly by Davout's Corps. Uh, they're the big guns. And the rest of them, like the troops from the German states, are not actually very highly rated or very good. Um, my friend and colleague at Oxford, Peter Wilson, has just written a brilliant book called Iron and Blood about uh, the German oh, right, military. Right. I heard about that. Yeah, I heard about that book. Yeah, German military history. In mm -hmm. fact, I was at a launch for it the other night. And... Um, you know, he was, we were all sort of saying, where does the, this myth of your know, German military 
you know, might come from, that the Germans are good soldiers. It's, it's only the Prussians. And he said, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, it doesn't really start till 1871 because they're all looking at the German troops and saying, look, these guys are useless. So the army's not as imposing as it seems. It's got horrendous logistical problems. I mean, I, so I think some readers will be really interested in what I went through to do that. Others might find it a bit sort of geekish. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's got these massive logistical problems in that, say, Napoleon says, look, it's going to be a quick campaign. The Russian campaign was only meant to be three weeks long. So when we give them three weeks rations, you'll be able to live off the land. Well, Russia's not like that. Yeah. You know, it, it, there is nothing, and they have a scorched earth policy. The horses, everybody thinks the horses died because of the winter snow and they ate them. No, the horses come in and they run, they, they don't have enough wagons to bring in fodder for the horses. So the horses eat raw green grass and they all die of stomach poisoning on the way into Russia. They've lost them before the battles even begin. He's thinking big Napoleon. He brings in these huge wagons pulled by umpteen horses. The The Russian roads can't cope with them. There are no paved roads. They're dirt tracks. You know, even before the rains and the mud, they can't cope with them. I mean, it's in a way, it's not unlike what we saw in, Mar in early March in Ukraine. Right, yeah. It's, uh... You know, these big, massive convoys of chunk of tanks and half tracks, and they just got bogged down. Hmm. That's exactly what happened to him. You know, snarl ups one thing and another. Um, the, the idea is you've got to bring the Russians to battle and lick them. And every time they do get the Russians into a big battle, which is only twice, they do lick them. But by the time they get to Moscow, the army's exhausted. Yeah. And then, you know, the familiar Russian strategy sort of to, to uh, you yeah. know, trade space for time and. Uh, exactly. Let the the vastness of the country sort of swallow up any invading army. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. But even that's not clear cut because Alexander wants to do that. Yeah. Some of his commanders want to do that, and he's coming under pressure from other ones saying, "Look, you've got to put up a fight. You know, you just can't let him walk into Moscow." And Alexander says, "Yes, I can," and they're saying, "No, you can't. You have to put up a fight." And he does put up a fight, and he loses. <laughs> Napoleon takes Moscow, mm -hmm. but you just, as you say, you trade territory for time. They just. They just pull back to somewhere where there's plenty of food. Yeah. Sit there and let Napoleon starve. Yeah, and then the the famous retreat. So how much so of the Grand Army? How much? How many of them actually make it back? Uh, only, into... it's only a tiny fraction. Barely ten percent. Oh, I would say less than ten percent. It's hard to know exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's barely ten percent. But a lot of them are the best troops. Yeah. But some of the losses are horrendous. Yeah. So after this massive defeat, the rest of Europe is basically like, aha, now is our chance, you know, to kick Napoleon when he's down. And uh, this is when the War of the Sixth Coalition begins. So uh, Austria, Prussia, Sweden, uh, you know, some of the German states, they're all going to switch sides. And basically it's napoleon versus all of europe at this point but how does he go how does he uh reassemble a new army uh, so quickly uh because 1812 obviously the it just goes disastrously long he loses basically the entire army 
And then by 1813, you know, in a, in a year, they're going to have this uh, struggle for Germany, you know, culminating in mm-hmm. the Battle of uh, Leipzig, which is, you know, the, the Battle of Nations, which is the uh, which is the largest battle in Europe until mm-hmm. until the Great War starts. Yeah, um, it's, it's not a straightforward thing putting that coalition together. Uh, because the Russians have taken a terrible battering from Napoleon. Mm. People tend to forget that. Alexander's army and his whole country has taken a hell of a battering. And they kick him out of Russia and they get to the border, you know, with Poland and with, with Prussia. And a lot of the high commanders saying, look, can we not just call it quits? We got rid of him. You know, the boys are exhausted. Mm. And there's a big push to don't go on. The Prussians really want to fight on because they want their country back. Austria stayed sort of on Napoleon's side, but moving cautiously to neutrality. You know, they won't come into the coalition. And, uh, you know, the Russians have done this all on their own. They're exhausted. And at at a crucial point, when it looks like it's, you know, they're going to give in, Britain steps in. And Britain says, we will bankroll you. And they had in Castlereagh a remarkably farsighted and very hard bitten foreign secretary. And it starts off as it's going to be loans. And Castlereagh says, look, they kicked Napoleon's head in. Just give him the money. Mm-hmm. You know, the Russians can produce their own armaments. They don't need armaments from us. They need money. Just give it to them. Give them some. Give the give the Prussians some and say to the Austrians, if you come into the coalition, you can have some, too. Because the Austrians have taken a terrible beating in 1809 and they're very cautious about what they're going to do. Alexander and the Prussians say, right, we'll go for it. And they're the only ones who start the fight, carry on the fight in 1813 with with British backing, with a lot of British Mm -hmm. money. And Napoleon puts together a new army the minute he gets back to Paris. It's an amazing feat of the administration and of ruthlessness. He tears up the rule book when it comes to conscripting people. You know, um, okay, well, he's, he's 16. Well, he looks 18. Take him. Yeah. You know, look, he's, we've already taken two sons from that family. I don't care. He strips. There's a paramilitary force, police force in France, the gendarmerie. Mm-hmm. He, he strips it down raw because these guys are experienced soldiers. They're veterans. This is when he starts to lose in Spain because he starts taking troops out of Spain to send them to Central Europe to fight the Russians and the Prussians. And he puts together an army at Dresden, which is almost in 1813, which is almost completely French. And he gets them into battle at Dresden with the Prussians and the Russians, and he beats them. You would expect that to be the end of everything, but they keep their nerve. Mm -hmm. And they tell the British, we will fight on. We've still got the men. We've got more men coming from Russia. We've got you've given us the money. We're not going to be deterred. And Napoleon thinks, gulp, you know, what do I do now? And that's when Austria joins them. So at Leipzig, by the time you get to Leipzig, despite the fact he won at Dresden, the odds are against him. And the one thing Napoleon can't do, he can find men, he can find soldiers and train them. But he can't find more horses. He's lost them all in Russia. Because he wins at Dresden, and there's no cavalry pursuit of Alexander. 
Well, Alexander's got all the horses off the step. The step ponies are like Mustangs in the American West. Mm. You know, there are millions of them. Alexander's thinking he didn't chase me. Ha, ha, ha. So Alexander <laughs> unleashes the Cossacks right across Europe. You know, and everybody sort of give us a break from the Cossacks. Yeah. In the meantime, the Austrian foreign minister, Metternich, who I, I think is somebody close to a diplomatic genius, starts to persuade the German princes to change sides. So by the time you get to Leipzig, certainly after the defeat, the German princes all change sides. Napoleon literally has the rug pulled out from under him and has to get back to France. And that's when the tide really turned for good. Yeah. And uh, just speaking of uh, Spain again and uh, the, or the, the Spanish ulcer, um, you know, what you mentioned he really starts to lose when they have to start pulling troops out to face this mm -hmm. new threat in Eastern in uh, Central Europe. But what is the, the real importance of the of the peninsular campaign in Iberia? the long-term consequences of the inability of Napoleon and of his generals to gain a decisive victory there and push the British, uh, you know, off of the peninsula. Yeah. My own view is it wasn't decisive mm -hmm. because between sort of 1810 and 1812, when the French aren't fighting anywhere else, they're winning in Spain. You know, I spent many evenings chatting to my friend Charlie Esdale about this that you know really he, he, he knows a great deal about it and a lot of my Spanish colleagues say the same he, Napoleon's winning the British are bottled up in Portugal and Galicia which is the northwest bit of Spain mm -hmm. every time they stick their nose out they get it bitten off you know the French are too strong um, and then it's only by sort of 1813 when Napoleon is yanking men out of Spain to send to, to Central Europe, that the French start to weaken and the British can, can, and the Spanish can start really fighting back. And, and that's when the ground is lost. And even then, as uh, Charles Estelle points out, I think very, very sharply in, in, in a couple of things he'd written, that the less territory the French have to defend in Spain, the better they can do it. You know, it's getting sure. tougher and tougher and tougher. Um, so it does tie down a lot of troops that could be used elsewhere, Spain. But on the other hand, it becomes a treasure trove of hard, experienced soldiers for him to get when he needs them. Mm -hmm. You know, if Spain had happened, he'd had to invent it to get the hard, experienced soldiers he needs Yeah. Um, to, to prop it up. But I don't think on its own it could never have been decisive. No, but do you think, like, say, if they had pushed the British out in 1811 uh, and freed up all the... Do you think those troops would have made a difference in Russia? Or do you think they would have just, uh, you know, if he would have been able to add them to the Grand Armée? Or uh, do you think they would have just ended up, you know, corpses on the side of the road just like everybody else? It, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, they were excellent troops, but... My own feeling about it is this, I and mean, it's it's funny. Um, Charles did a, a quick calculation once on the back of an envelope and said, you know, he wouldn't have needed all those second-rate German troops in Spain if he could have sent the good in in Russia if he could have sent the good French troops from Spain into Russia, and it would have raised the fighting quality of the army 
to a tremendous degree. But that said, um, my own feeling about it is, frankly, that things like cholera, dysentery, frostbite, they don't discriminate between good and bad troops. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably would have wound up dead on the roadside, maybe not dead on the battlefield, just the same. So it's very hard to call. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, after Leipzig, uh, Napoleon, he gets starts getting pushed back into France. Uh, Paris falls uh, to the coalition in March 1814, and then Napoleon is forced to abdicate in early April, and then he's exiled famously to Elba. Uh, so, uh, what is what is his time like on on Elba? What what is <laughs> what's boring. Napoleon doing? <laughs> Absolutely boring. Uh. <laughs> it's, you know, it shows you what the, I mean. I think Elba's one of the nicest places uh. I've ever been in my life. And of course, Maria Valeska, you know, is his, his, his old girlfriend, his old mister, Polish mistress, turns up to keep him company. And I thought, if I'd have been Napoleon, I wouldn't have left Elba. This is yeah. great, you know. Yeah. Nice little Mediterranean island. Got my girlfriend. What do you want? What do you want? But um, he is bored to tears. You can tell. You know, he he does a lot of reorganization. He keeps himself busy. He he turns the the salt mines and lead mines and stuff on Elba into a going concern. Uh, he taxes them very horrendously, he imposes conscription to raise a little army for himself. Uh, he's kept busy enough keeping the Barbary Corsairs off the coast. Mm. You know, people were grateful to him for that in retrospect. But but he's also pacing up and down. He misses his wife and son desperately. You know, he, he really uh, he misses all that. And of course, he's getting news from Paris all the time through a very loyal network of people, mainly his stepdaughter Hortense, Josephine's daughter Hortense, and um, several of his former you know, collaborators who are still kind of lurking around that really this place is ripe for the taking, you better get back you know, so it's a it's a very difficult period there, uh, he's got his mum there of course, which helps him he's got his sister Pauline with him who gets on his nerves so <laughs> you know <that's... laughs> There may be a difficult, undocumented thing in the story. You could never say that Polly had gotten his nerves so much he had to get out. But um, it's a, it's a very frustrating time for him. Yeah, you mentioned his. Uh, thanks for bringing that up because I, I had that question planned and I forgot about it. Um, you mentioned how he, he misses his wife and son. Uh, his son, born uh, uh, Napoleon Francis. Um, mm-hmm. He's a particularly doting father, uh, surprisingly, and I guess that's you know one one thing in his favor, uh, Napoleon. And but um, the fact that he is a father, um, that, or that he's now become a father, uh, this is more <clears throat> towards the beginning of the book before all this other stuff we talked about happens. <laughs> um, this is gonna this is really gonna affect his decision making going forward. Uh, basically, what. Uh, you know, he's trying to accomplish and what he's trying to leave for his son, for his posterity. Definitely. I, that's a point I was really keen to make in the book. Um, having studied the correspondence, you know, Napoleon's correspondence with people, having read very closely other people's correspondence, and their, their 
memoirs about him, guys who were close to him, like Colin Gouris, sometime foreign minister, Cambesserer, who was really his number two, his minister of justice, uh, not his minister of justice, but his um, arch-chancellor, who was a very, very close friend and collaborator. You haven't taken all that evidence in line. I think this is two major things influenced Napoleon about going into Russia uh, and doing what he does. And it, it turns on now having an heir who's only a tiny little boy, you know, just just a toddler. Mm. And it it goes like this, I think. Alexander is still there. And with a formidable Russian army, he's the only guy left in, in, in Europe who can hurt me. But he's there. Yeah. Secondly, I am very ill, and I know I am very ill. I don't know what I've got, but I know whatever I've got, I've got it bad. I haven't got long to live. And so I have to do something about Alexander, as he tells several people, as he tells Cambersmeres, as he tells, tells Koninko. Uh, I have to fight this war while I can still get in the saddle. Yeah. You know, in a few years, I won't be able to do it. And I've got to do it now because they're all trying to say, look, this is crazy. You can't do this. And he's saying, I, I, I take, you know, I take your argument. I mean, he's not a rude man. He's not one of these guys who'll kick you out of the room because he disagrees with you. He'll sit mm -hmm. you down and pour you another coffee and say, all right, tell me. But he says, but I can't I can't help it. This is you know, we've got to do this because we've got to do it because the chances are I'm going to die soon. And there's going to be a long regency. And that'll be a difficult time for that boy. You know, mm -hmm. so he's got to be as secure as he can be. And, and I think I think honestly, that is one of his biggest motives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, so tragically, his son will die. Uh, yeah, I think he was only 20 or 21 when mm -hmm. uh, when he dies in I think 1830, 1831, 1832. 1831. Around 1831. Yeah. Uh, tu tuberculosis, wasn't it? Uh, no, or... no, it wasn't. Uh, this is a subject of a lot of controversy. He was a pretty healthy kid. Actually, there was no major illnesses as far as I know. Uh, but in 1830, there were a lot of revolutions in Europe in 1830, a big one in France, mm -hmm. and quite a few outbreaks in other places. And Napoleon's name was much, he was dead, but Napoleon's name was much shouted. You know, uh, Napoleon, by that stage, his memory, his legend had mingled in with that of the French Revolution. Sure. Uh, in, in Paris Revolution in 1830, a guy called David Pinkney did a very close study of what people were arrested for shouting. And Vive Napoleon comes out on top, <laughs> ahead of Vive la République. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Austrians decide this kid's a danger, is my reading of it. And he's sent out to review troops for hours on end on a pouring, freezing cold day. Not surprisingly, he gets pneumonia and he dies. Mm. You know, you can read into it what you like. Uh, I think everybody wanted rid of him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, because he's a he's a rallying point. He's a you know, he's one of the he's I mean, it, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't leave. Uh, well, I mean, if I mean, this is, again, very. As you said, sort of Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, it is. Know, uh, it is. I mean, evil just, you know, they're the name 
I mean, the glory of the name Napoleon, I mean, it, it certainly going to last, you know, up until <laughs> Louis Napoleon, uh, Napoleon right. III. That's and right. uh, you can't have, I mean, if you, in, in, you know, especially in that, that post-war Europe where uh, the security of the continent is basically uh, in the uh, guiding mission of, of uh you know, of the, of the European con or the Congress of Europe or the Congress of Vienna of all those powers is sort of, we got to tamp down on this, uh, revolutionary, uh, mm. or this fervor that's been, uh, sort of let loose in Europe by the, by the French revolution and yeah. all that. You can't, you can't leave, <laughs> uh, the living, you know, the son of Napoleon, the, uh, heir to Napoleon's, uh, uh, name and to his, uh, uh, legacy you can't leave him really alive because that just is going to cause trouble somewhere <laughs> you know, like yeah, somewhere down I mean, the line that's gonna that's gonna come back to... it's a wonder he lived as long as he did mm -hmm. i mean uh, britain and france nearly go to war you know in 1823 over a complicated series of revolutions in spain mm -hmm. and um part of the british radical political establishment actually start calling for the overthrow of the French monarchy and for Napoleon II to be put in in France. Yeah. You know, at, at, you, at which point everybody turns around to the British and say, you muzzle them, you know. <laughs> yeah. We don't do censorship in this country. Well, you do now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, all right. So uh, back to uh, regular old Napoleon, Napoleon I. Um, so he's on Elba. How does, and then we, we get his famous... Uh, his Hundred Days, uh, and then the, the War of the Seventh Coalition, uh, which will culminate in, in Waterloo, and then, you know, eventually them kicking him halfway, uh, you know, across the world, basically. Uh, so how does Napoleon get from Elba back to France to build up a new a new army and, and make another go at, uh, you know, the, the, last, the last hurrah, uh, you know, of trying to uh, bring himself back into power? in France. You couldn't make it up. I mean, you couldn't. He already has a kind of a mini fleet on Elba. Because again, he needs it to protect Elba's coast from the Barbary Corsairs, you know, the, the pirates that come out of Algeria and Tunis and Morocco. Um, so he has a small fleet of his own. And he just, nobody's paying any attention to this. It, it's completely incompetence by the British Secret Service. He just hires a few more ships through agents of his in Marseille. And he's got you know, this little flotilla of ships and he sails off and his minder, who's supposed to keep an eye on him, this British guy, Campbell, he convinces Campbell that his mistress, who's in, in, in Tuscany, is having an affair with somebody. So Campbell disappears. So he's not on the island and Napoleon just sails off. <laughs> you know, and... Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's sort of ridiculous. Sir, sir, Napoleon. That's Napoleon's ship. I mean, they're sailing off. They're also, oh, they're probably just on a patrol. <laughs> yeah. He gets back. He lands in the south of France, puts up the standard. Nobody rallies to him. I think this is interesting. The south of France, they never liked him down there. And the guy who's the commandant at Marseille was one of his marshals, but but has a grudge. He and Napoleon have grudge against each other. And Massena kind of says, "I'm going to catch him," but he dawdles a little bit. Napoleon goes north. He stays out of the way. The first part is not a triumphal march. I've driven it 
And he's, this guy is going around goat tracks and stuff like that. You know? Mm-hmm. And my wife and I drove it just out of curiosity years ago when we were first going out. It was one of those things, don't look down. <laughs> you know, yeah. teardrop, don't look down, just look ahead. Michael, yeah, yeah. just look ahead. Don't get distracted. Don't look down. <laughs> and then, you know, So he doesn't come out of the backwaters for a long time. And then, you know, he has these incidents, the first big important ones at Grenoble, when the garrison comes over to him. And then at Lyon, again, same thing. And then he's in the home straight. You know, that's the home stretch. Nobody's going to stop him. Um, because the Bourbons don't take it to begin with, don't take it seriously enough. The restored King Louis XVIII in Paris and the board, they don't take it seriously enough. Um, the army has obviously been stripped of virtually nothing because he doesn't trust them. The king doesn't trust them. Uh, he, it turns out he was right not to trust them. And it's kind of a triumphal march. But getting a real fighting army together once he takes Paris again uh, is actually proves very difficult because the army that went to Waterloo is pretty threadbare. Mm. You know, there's, there's not a lot left to work with once he actually gets power again. But it is a triumphal march. You know, once he once he gets that garrison at Grenoble to join him, he's on his way. If they'd opposed him, it would all have been over. But the residual loyalty was there. Yeah. And uh, one thing I just talk about the sort of the bloodshed of this period. Uh, basically, France, in a way, has never recovered population wise from uh, from all of the uh, deaths in in fighting all these wars or first in the revolution, mm-hmm. the revolutionary wars and then Napoleon's wars. Uh, but it left a significant, uh, a significant, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, difference in, uh, you know, in the number of men and women, uh, in that generation in that period. And then France, the, uh, over the next coming years will eventually get, uh, its population. Uh, France used to be the most, you know, populated country yeah, in was. Europe. Uh, but after the Napoleonic Wars, they're going to lose their spot to, to the Germans and, and even the English or, you know, the British are going to uh, surpass the, the French in population. So uh, I know people think of this period, they don't really think of it like uh, or there was there was a more romantic tinge to it. I don't know if it's because of the of its uh, Napoleon himself or just the the uniforms and, the, you know, yeah, the different colors yeah. and the helmets and the, you know, yeah. The, and all that. So we don't think of the Napoleonic Wars, the carnage of those wars, the way we think of, say, uh, you know, the Great War, where there's just mm. sort of no one has any sort of romantic uh, feelings, you know, no, no. Uh, about that war, or even or even the Second World War because of the Holocaust and yeah. and all that. And um, you know, so when, but there was a it was a truly uh, a monumental amount of bloodshed during this period, um, you know, during these wars all across it, Europe. It's terrifying. All across Europe is terrifying. Uh, it's not only France that never comes back militarily. Austria never comes back either. Really. Mm. The, Germany, of course, gets around it because Germany unites. Yeah. You know, Germany fragmented is always going to be able to pick. You can always pick it off. But once Germany becomes united, really effectively after 1866, 
certainly after 1871, you know, that brings a whole new force to bear on it. It's Russia that dominates the continent in many ways, um, you know, until the 1850s, 60s. And Austria never comes back from these wars either, any more than France. France is starting to get itself together when World War One comes along. Otherwise, it couldn't have put up the resistance it did. Sure. Yeah. But the, but the, the carnage of, world, of, of the Napoleon, Revolution Napoleonic Wars is it's unbelievable because it's cumulative. Those wars start in 1792. Mm. You know, that's a long time to be fighting. Yeah. Um, it's an entire generation. Yeah. It's a generation and a half. I almost understand my students when I tell them that, you know, how long that both these these wars went on longer than most of you've been alive. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, the, the toll was horrendous. Uh, one of the most terrifying things about it was what happened in northern Italy in the sort of Lombardy region, you know, around Milan and Bologna, mm -hmm. around there. Because that was... Um, you know, the Napoleonic kingdom of Italy that he ruled as king of Italy. That had been part of his domain since about, you know, 1800. And almost he raises a very good army in that country under good commanders. And they're they all wiped out in 1812. Because one of the things that perpetuates the Napoleonic myth in France, in parts of Germany, a lot of the German soldiers who fought with Napoleon, you know, very loyal to him. You know, they go on having their reunions. There's a tradition that carries on, a military tradition that starts to build up. It's absent in Italy because they're all dead. Mm. The hit was the hit was appalling on the whole population, and not just them. But we're only beginning to start to understand this: the psychological scars on all the veterans. You know, there are a lot of dysfunctioning Rambo's out there in early 19th century France. Yeah. A lot of people who just never readjust, who can't settle down to civilian life, who can't get employment because they were Napoleonic soldiers and the royalist government doesn't trust them. Hmm. You know, it's a very, very damaged society. And we're only beginning now to look at that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've already... I kept you longer than I said I would, so I apologize. <laughs> uh, just, no, no, uh, just a couple more questions. So, um, so how should we think of how should we today think of Napoleon? What what would you say his is his true legacy? I mean, is he? Uh, you know, there's some you can tell with some biographers of by uh, with Napoleon that you know some really don't like him. Uh, and then some that, you know, kind of like him maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> you know, yeah, know. You, yes, most certainly. Uh, so uh, you, uh, I, I understand his appeal. Uh, but but uh, but but really, what, what would you say is, is the true legacy of Bonaparte? He's a very polarizing person. And you shouldn't be surprised that he leaves very different and contradictory legacies. Napoleon, the warlord, the fighter, was it was horrendous. You know, we've been through all that, the casualties, mm. the horror of it. Could the wars have been stopped? Could it have been different? I'm not sure, because he inherited this conflict that had been going on for years before, but as he fights it on a 
bigger scale. You know what I mean? He's, mm-hmm. he's always out to sort of wipe out all opposition. It's a kind of a net, it's a kind of a net zero approach to military opposition, and it, it, it's horrendous. And yet, if you look at the way most European countries function today, not Britain, Britain's apart, Britain's out of this. Mm. The legal system, the administrative system, the educational system, the foundations of it, the essence of it is Napoleonic. The civil order that he gave to Europe worked. To me, one of the proofs of the pudding is Eastern Europe. I was talking to a Polish friend of mine not long ago on a podcast. And he said, you know, he said, you you buy and sell a house in Poland and you buy and sell a house in Paris. There's no difference. Hmm. But you try and buy and sell a house in London or New York. You don't know where you are. It's a completely different world. The legal systems are so different. But between the, the, in Poland, France, he said, you after everything my country has been through. You know, the, 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 the Russians, the Nazis, the Russians again. It's the same in the Czech Republic. It's the same in Hungary. Somehow or other, that Napoleonic system reasserts itself the minute people can do it. You look even during the, 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 the terrible AIDS pandemic. Uh, one of the, the problem spots in Western Europe was, was the Rhine Corridor. But because the administrative systems are so sim- basically similar, the German local authorities in Baden and the French local authorities in Alsace were able to work together almost seamlessly mm-hmm. because they work the same system. All of that, you know, comes back to Napoleon in so many ways. You know, the, the, the educational system in France, it still is, still works. Um, so it's a it's a very mixed legacy. I mean, he said himself, the thing I'm, I take most pleasure in is the Grande Armée. But the military victories could dry up. They could end. We could all end in tears, which it did. The lasting achievement would be the civil code. And he was right. Yeah. You know, so it's a very, it's a, he's a polarizing figure. And he's left a polarized legacy. Yeah. And I think for Americans, um, because we were sort of detached from, really from all this. Uh, As are the uh, British. Yeah. But I, I think the British, there's... Uh, a, a stronger fascination with him than there is here. Just like I said, just because we were so far removed from the entire situation, mm. but it's hard for Americans really to sort of come to understand how much Napoleon it just sort of shadowed over this entire period. I mean, mm. you read just about any, uh, any man of letters of, the 19th century uh there it's it's almost like everybody is grappling with napoleon uh mm-hmm. you know even yeah 15 20 years after uh yeah. you know after his fall and after his death i mean it's still uh, uh you know it, it still people are just thinking about him and, and grappling with what he did and what yeah and what he meant and all these things yeah. and it's it's uh in a way um in european history uh, it's probably unparalleled i would think you know and i i i don't even think hitler it or, is or anybody else uh has sort of been 
on the minds of so many for so long, you know. Um, yeah, it's just uh, sort of it's hard for Americans to really uh, mm-hmm. come to come to really understand that, you know, because we're like again, like I said, we're just sort of more uh, we're so far removed from it. We yeah. didn't, we didn't have any involvement really in those wars other than like the War of eighteen twelve and yeah. you know some stuff on the on 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 the high seas, but. Um, but yeah, it's a very, it's amazing how much of a, of a colossus he is in, in human history. It is. And that's why it never ceases to fascinate, I think. Yeah. Because this is somebody without precedent. This guy did come out of nowhere. Now people have come out of nowhere since, but nobody had come out of nowhere before. Not like that. Yeah. You know, and 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 the the mark he left in in every facet of life, for good or ill, was indelible. Right up to World War One, there was nothing that ever matched it. It it is colossal. Every aspect of civic life in most, of, certainly Western and Central Europe, you can you can see his mark on it. All thinking turned around. How did he do this? Mm-hmm. You know, Clausewitz was a contemporary, but he was fascinated by him. And, of course, his military writings influenced two, three generations of sure. people. And he's influenced by Napoleon. Goethe, who was the best-selling you know, literary colossus, I think is difficult. The Anglo-Saxon world doesn't really know Goethe. But his status as a writer, um, as a, a not just a, a novelist or a playwright or a poet, but as a thinker, as a mm-hmm. philosopher, as a public intellectual, and Goethe was, you know, utterly fascinated by this guy. Yeah, he sort of never. I mean, he actually saw Napoleon in the flesh, and he sort of never got over it. You know, they, it met, was, it twi- was, they met each other twice, yeah. and they never forgot each other. Yeah. And I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a fanboy thing. I mean, Napoleon says, "Will you come to Paris and be my poet laureate?" Goethe says, "You must be joking. I'm a German. I yeah. work for you." Napoleon's <laughs> okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But but I mean, he was fascinated by him. He said, "You you underestimate that guy at your peril." Yeah. You know, this is a force of nature. This, and it's true. And it, it is a. That's why you you never have to. You'll never understand him. You'll never get to the bottom of him, but you can never stop trying. Yeah. Because he does occupy everybody's waking moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, like I said, I kept you a little long, so I'll end it. No, no. Uh, I'll end it with the uh, the question I ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast at the end, and. Uh, that is, uh, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? Or, you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from having read it? You might have answered it with the last question, but uh, <laughs> or we might have been talking about <laughs> well, it. Well, that, that maybe they ha- understand some of the questions that don't get asked properly or don't get asked at all or don't get answered. Maybe they'll understand some of those things a bit better than before they read it. Okay. Not have an answer. Not not have an answer. I haven't answered it for them. But maybe <laughs> they'll understand better. Make uh, their make their own minds up in a more informed way. All right. Great. Well, um, uh, let's see. You've got this whole this uh, this trilogy finished. A lot <laughs> of work. Um, so do you have uh, anything else? You got uh, planned anything you're uh, uh, cooking up, or are you just taking a nice, uh, nice little break after the that uh, you know 
10 year marathon. <laughs> well, I, I retired in October. Oh, congratulations. So, uh, thank you very much. It doesn't feel like it. So I'm having a very quiet few months, just doing a few conference papers uh, here and there around Europe. And then I'm going back to write a book. I hope probably start in spring in the campaigning season. Uh, I hope I'm going to write a, a book again. It's about the, Nepal, the concept of Napoleonic imperialism, the thinking behind um, the, the running of the empire mm-hmm. and the relations between the French and the non-French peoples of the empire, that kind of thing. All right, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that one. And uh, again, the uh, book today, uh, Napoleon, The Decline and Fall of an Empire, 1811-1821. Fascinating book. The whole trilogy is uh, fascinating. And uh, you really, um, I mean, don't take my word for it. Google uh, Google it and, you know, look at the reviews from... uh, from all over the place, uh, uh, you know, just the, the rave reviews from the Spectator and the Washington Post and the Times and the Telegraph and the Literary Review and Lord knows who else. Um, Wall Street to, Journal the other day. Oh, Wall Street Journal, very good, very yeah. nice. Yeah, that's I, I missed that one, so I'll have to go back and I'll have to go looking for that. Um, but yeah, it's just the the whole. I mean, you don't you don't have to have read the first two volumes. Um, of the trilogy to uh, make heads or tails of this one. It's, you know, it's, it's, you can read it on its own. Um, but I highly suggest that uh, you go back and check out the other two uh, as well, because they're both uh, fascinating and uh, highly, 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 highly recommend this book and the whole trilogy to everybody. Again, the book, uh, Napoleon, the decline and fall of an empire, 1811, 1821. And the author, um, I guess today, uh, Dr. Michael Brewer. So uh, professor Brewer, thank you uh, very, very, very much for, for coming on the podcast today and, and talking the book and discussing Napoleon with me. And, and, and thank you very much for, uh, you know, taking the, uh, taking close to a decade of your life to write this trilogy <laughs> of Napoleon. I really, <laughs> as a reader of the three volumes, I, I, I really, really appreciate your, your hard work and your scholarship. And, uh, um, so it was a, it was a treat to, uh, go on this, on this journey with you over this last decade with these uh, three books. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure in every way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And then again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books uh, you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, or if you have any uh, questions, comments, all that sort of stuff, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, we do have our Twitter account for the uh, for the podcast. You can reach out to us there too if you have any questions, comments, that sort of thing. You know, send us a DM, give us a follow, all that stuff. Our uh, what is our Twitter? Our Twitter the excuse me. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye. Neath the stars above He was the sweetest man you ever
never did see when he held me in his arms and told me of my many charms he kissed me while the fiddles played the bone of parts retreat all the world was bright when he Goodbye, little boy. 